Good morning. I am excited to get to open the Word of God with you this morning. Um, for those of you who don't know me, because usually I'm downstairs during this hour, uh, my name is Colton Taylor. Um, I'm a student at Beeson Divinity School. Um, I'm actually in, finally in my third year, so get, getting close, still have a year left. Um, and I have served here at Liberty for the past year um, with the student ministry. I work with Matt, do pretty much anything he tells me to do, and also focus with the middle school students. Um, so like I said, I'm excited to get to share the Word of God with y'all. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open with me to 1 John chapter 2. Um, this morning, as we've come this far in 1 John so far, we're going to finish off chapter 2. And we're going to talk about abiding in Christ. So in 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 26, John says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we come to you this morning. We just thank you for the opportunity to get to come together, to look into your word, to study your word together, to worship you, to praise you through song, through giving, and through studying your word. We thank you so much for what Jesus has done on the cross for us and how he has made that way to restore us back to you. We thank you so much for the freedom that we have to get to come and study your word openly. We thank you for all the veterans who have served our country, dear Lord, and who have made that possible. And we just pray this morning as we look into your word that we'll come with open hearts, receptive hearts, and that we'll come listening to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, as we come to the end of 1 John chapter 2, um, we've already seen this word abide at the beginning of 1 John. But when we come here in these last four verses, we see this word abide three different times. Two of those times, are the word abide is used as an imperative. It's used as a command, a command to abide in Christ. So as I think about this word abide, and as it occurs over and over in 1 John, I keep getting a picture of John chapter 15. When Jesus tells his disciples, he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Jesus paints a beautiful picture of what it means to abide using a grapevine. See, the branches on a grapevine are totally dependent on the vine that they are attached, for, that they are attached to. They need that vine for everything they need in life. The vine is connected straight to the roots and draws all the water and all the nutrients that the branches need to survive. And apart from the vine, the branches are dead. But maybe you say, I've never seen a grapevine. I don't know exactly what you're talking about. The, the same picture is true with any tree. The branches apart from the trunk cannot survive. 
The trunk of the tree draws up the life needed to sustain the branches. And it is only when connected to, having fellowship with, and abiding in the vine that the branches have life and are able to produce fruit. In John chapter 15, Jesus even goes as far as to say that the branch that does not abide in the vine does not produce fruit. And it withers. And it is to be thrown away. So to abide, that word, to abide, it means to have fellowship with. It means to remain in. So exactly what does that mean, to abide, to remain in, to have fellowship with Christ? In John chapter, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, John tells us that to abide in Christ means to walk as he walked. So as we abide in Christ, we remain in him as the source of our life. For we know apart from him, we would just wither. We, we would just deserve to be thrown away. So as we remain in Him, we walk as He walked. Already in the first two chapters of 1 John, we've seen that to walk as He walked, we must remain in truth. We must obey His commands. We must love our brothers and our sisters. In these past two weeks, um, as, the enemy, as the enemy has attacked, I've had to evaluate my own life to see where I failed to abide and remain in Christ. And so here, as we get to the end of 1 John chapter 2, John gives us four more pictures of what it looks like to abide in Christ. And that first one, in verse 27, it says, But the anointing that you have received from Him abides in you. So abiding in Christ means abiding in our anointing. To be anointed means that we have been chosen, that we have been set apart we have been ordained for God's, special pur- for God's special purposes and service. We see this idea of anointing all throughout the Old Testament with the prophets and with the priests and the kings. We see before they go on to perform their service, they are anointed with oil and they're set apart for the service of the kingship or the priesthood. In Exodus chapter 28, verse 41, we see Aaron and his sons being anointed for the priesthood. In this part of Exodus, God has done given the nation of Israel His commandments. He's done given them His law. And He goes through and he, he breaks down that law and gives them each specific law. And He's about to go through and tell them how they're going to construct the new tabernacle. But before He even tells them about the tabernacle, He, he, um, gives, the, he gives Aaron and his sons as the priests to serve in that tabernacle. And then in 1 Samuel 16, verses 1 through 13, we have Samuel, or Saul, God has done decided that he is going to appoint a new king after Saul. So he sends Samuel to Jesse. And his purpose in going to Jesse is he is going to go, he's finding the next king for Israel. And he's going in, he's ready to anoint the next king. And he asks Jesse, he says, please line up all of your sons so that I can go through and that the Spirit of God can discern who is the next king. And as his sons come one by one, Samuel, keep, Samuel, Samuel keeps thinking, yeah, this is the one. He looks like a king. But God says, no, this is not the one. 
And Samuel says to Jesse, is this, this is all the sons you have? And he says, no, they're still the youngest, but he's out tending the sheep. And Samuel says, go, send for him, bring him here, and I'll wait. And when David walks in, the Spirit of the Lord said, this is him, rise and anoint him. And so the, in verse 13, 1 Samuel chapter 16 says, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So Aaron and his brothers and David, they were anointed, they were set apart, consecrated for their special service for the Lord. But we also come, this word anointed, we come to it again when we think of Jesus Christ himself. In Psalms chapter 2, verse 2, it says, The kings of the earth set themselves, set, set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Down in verse 6, God says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. Jesus Christ, our Messiah, is God's anointed one. The one who is set apart for the purpose of bringing our salvation. That word Messiah means anointed one. And it's because of the work of Christ and his anointing, that, that special service that he did for us on the cross, that we are able to be priests ourselves. God calls us a nation of priests, a holy nation of priests. That means that we are not anointed with oil, but we are anointed by the Holy Spirit to be set apart as priests for the work of ministry. This isn't just pastors or teachers. This is every Christian who belongs to the church of Christ. Every Christian is anointed as a priest for the work of ministry. We are set apart Remember, the whole, this whole law that God had given his people was to set the nation of Israel apart from all the other nations. And in the same way, we are anointed, we are set apart when we receive the Holy Spirit into our lives. We're set apart from the rest of the world as God's people. But we're not just set apart to be different or to stick up our noses. We're set apart for the rest of the world. We're set apart to take God to them, to show them his truth and his word. So our question is, do you live as though you have been anointed and set apart for God's purpose? When we finish up chapter, or verse 27 here, it says, But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. The second thing here is abiding in Christ means abiding in truth. Last week, as we were um, in the verses right before this in chapter 2, we were talking about false teachers and the deceivers and the, um, who come and who want to steer away the people of God and plant that seed of doubt and plant that seed of false teaching. And what we think is... Think about our culture today, the things we watch on TV, the things we, um, the music we listen to, or the things we see on the computer are just the different people that are in our lives. The culture as a whole is a culture of deceivers and a culture of liars. It's a culture that says that sin is not wrong, it is justifiable. It's a culture that says there are many ways to heaven. 
is a culture that says that God will just save everyone in the end. Why don't you just live like you want to right now? And it's a culture that just blatantly denies Jesus Christ altogether. And with the hard heart of Pharaoh says, Who is God that I should obey him? So our question is, who or what are we being deceived by? When God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, commandment number nine was, Thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not lie. And we were, we actually, we were actually talking about the Ten Commandments with the students a couple of weeks ago as we were walking through Exodus. And so as we went through each commandment, I was asking them this question. I was like, well, why did God give us this commandment? And so we asked, why did God give us this ninth commandment that says, you shall not lie? And the answer is simple. When we think about God, the truth of God is that God is a God of truth. And therefore, his people are to be a people of truth. As we just said, as we're anointed and set apart, our whole life should be set apart. That includes we should, we should not be deceivers or liars as the world is or as our culture is, but we're to be set apart in the things we say and that the truth of God should come out of us in the way that we speak. If we go back to chapter 1 of 1 John, verses 5 through 8, it says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We know that our God is a God of truth. We know that he is light, and that in his light, all darkness is exposed. When you light a match in a dark room, that, just that small match exposes everything that is in the darkness. But in God, there is light, and there is no darkness. In God, there is truth. There are no lies. In God, there are black and white. There is no gray areas. And that black and white, that truth, is found in his word, in his scripture that he has given us. But then we go on to this, this, this sentence here in 27. It says, you have no need that anyone should teach you. And we ask, what, what does it mean that we have no need that anyone should teach us? What is John saying in this sentence? John is not diminishing the authority or need for pastors or your life group leaders. He is telling the believers that if they have received the anointing of the Holy Spirit, they have no excuse in being led astray. We go back up to verse 20 and 21. It says, But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. So if we are in Christ, and we have come to that, salva that salvific knowledge of Him, we know the truth. His anointing abides in us. His Spirit abides in us. And it discerns truth from false teaching. 
And what John, is, what John is getting at here is not to get rid of your teachers or your pastors, but to use the knowledge and truth that you have to discern, to discern what others are telling you, to discern what is proper teaching from what is false teaching. Let's think of it this way. Think of any major league sports player. Let's, we can go with the NBA. By the time you get to the NBA, you've played basketball your entire life. And I'm hoping you're pretty good if you're going to walk in and make millions to play. So by this time, you know the game of basketball. You have a knowledge of how it's supposed to be played. You know the rules. But even major league players, even the NBA players, they have coaches. And those coaches are there to instruct them, to critique them, to keep coaching them and teaching them. But if a coach comes in and tells um, an NBA player who's played his entire life, hey, I need you to dribble with both hands, that player's going to be like, no, that's not right. That's double dribbling. That's a penalty. He, he discerns. He knows that the knowledge is there. Think of it. Many of you have worked at the same jobs for 15, 20, or even more years. You, know, you have the knowledge of what you're supposed to do. You know what works best and what doesn't. So if a new boss comes in and says, hey, I need you to do it this way, you have the discernment to say either, yeah, that'll be great, that would work, or no, that's, that's not going to fly. It's the same way with this knowledge that we have in Christ. We have the knowledge of who He is and the truth. We have the knowledge here in our hands, the Word, so that when someone comes to teach us or they say something, or our culture is throwing lies or trying to deceive us, we have no excuse to be led astray because we've come to that knowledge, to that anointing. When we think about Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, when He's in the wilderness, and Satan comes before him, and he comes to him, and he says, you know, you, you've have, you haven't eaten anything for 40 days. You haven't drank anything for 40 days. Just, just turn this bread, just turn this stone into bread. And what does Jesus say? He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then Satan takes Jesus up to the top of the temple, and he says, throw yourself down so that everyone can see you, and they'll see how God's angels will catch you and stop you from hitting the ground. And Jesus says, do not test the Lord your God. And then Satan takes Jesus up to the top of a mountain. He says, look, bow down and worship me, and everything you see, I will give to you. Which is foolishness in itself, because he already owned everything. Jesus goes back to Scripture, as he already has twice, and he says, you shall not worship any other God before your God. You shall not put anyone before your God. So Jesus resists these temptations. He resists the deceiver and the liar himself with the truth of Scripture. So we have to ask ourselves, daily, are you training yourself to discern truth from lies by being in the truth of God's Word? And we move down to verse 28. And it says, And now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. So number three, abiding in Christ 
means abiding in confidence. When I think about this, I get the picture of when I was little and in grade school, and I would get my report card, and I'm sure that you all can, you can all relate here. If I had all A's, I would walk into my parents confidently. I was proud of it. I would hand that to them as soon as I got in the door. I would, with confidence, I'd take it over to my grandmother's house because she'd give me $10 if I made all A's. And so with confidence, I'd walk up smiling, I'd hand it to her, I'd wait for my $10. I was proud. But those of you who have kids, you actually get this on both sides. You've, you've experienced it and you've seen it the other way. If I didn't have all A's, if I, if I had made some bad grades, when I came in the door, I was not confident. I didn't tell them that I had gotten my report card that day. I didn't walk in and hand it to them. I just went and done what I normally done and just tried to act like it didn't happen. And then, of course, my mom knew what day it was, so she'd call me in and she'd be like, where is it? You haven't given it to me yet, so I know what that means. And so with my head hanging, you know, I'd go and shamefully hand her my report card that did not have the best grades on it. And so when we abide in Christ, we abide in Him so that when He comes, when He comes in His second coming, we can stand before Him confidently. Because when we think of our holy God, and we look at His holy law, and we, when we look at that, we see how much we fall short. We know we are all sinners all fall short of the glory of God. We cannot match up to His perfect standard. We cannot match up to His holiness, to His righteousness. And we cannot help then, but when we think on that, to drop our heads in shame. For we are all sinners, and we none measure up to that perfect standard. See, but when we go over to Hebrews chapter 10... Verse 26 through 31 says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has, and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. So in our sin, not only do we come in shame, but we come in a fear, a scared fear. If I came to my mother in fear when all I had done was made less than A's on a report card or made bad grades, how much worse should I fear the living God who is a consuming fire? For this passage in Hebrews tells us that even just breaking a couple of the Mosaic laws just on the account of two or three witnesses that one would be put to death. How much worse is it 
when we set aside Christ himself, when we trample underfoot him and his name. But for those who are classified as children, those who have received that knowledge of truth and have given their lives to Christ and are abiding in him, they do not have to experience this shame. They do not have to experience this scared fear when Christ returns. Because Hebrews 9, in chapter 10, starting up there in verse 19, it says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure, with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see that day drawing near. So through the blood of Christ, our perfect priest, we get to boldly approach the throne. We do not have to sit with our heads downcast in shame because of all the sin that we have committed. But because Christ is our high priest who has went behind the curtain on our behalf, because of his sacrifice on the cross, because of that anointing that we have gotten from his Holy Spirit, we get to go before God confidently. We get, to go, we get to enter with confidence into the presence of a holy God. And this is all because Jesus lived a perfect life. He always did the things that pleased the Father, as we see in John 8, 29. And as we abide in Him, and as we have a fellowship with Him, we please the Father. And on that day, we will get to stand before God as though we have all A's on our report card. We get to enter with confidence. So then we move down in 1 John chapter 2 to verse 29. It says, If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So number four, abiding in Christ means abiding in righteousness. Now let me go ahead and clarify what I just said, that very last statement that I made. We have to remember that though we will stand before God as though we've made all A's on that report card, we have to remember that it's not on our own account. It's not from our own effort. It's not from the work that we put into it. Philippians 3.9 tells us that we stand before God with a righteousness that is not our own. Paul, has, Paul, said he, Paul said he's counted all his, all his great works, his knowledge, he counts that all for nothing. And he counts it all for nothing for the glory and the greatness of knowing Jesus Christ, his Savior. And then he says, and being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, not having a righteousness that comes from what I've done, not having a righteousness that comes from my good works or my great name, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteous from God, that depends on faith. 
So as we stand before God, we stand before Him in a righteousness that is not our own. So we have to ask, whose righteousness is it? And we know it's Jesus's. It's Jesus Christ, God's righteous. That righteousness that is on us. So what is righteousness? To be righteous means to be in a right standing. To be found faultless, to be found guiltless, to be found blameless. When we picture righteousness, we picture the courtroom. We picture God's righteousness and how God is completely righteous, how he's holy, he's set apart. He's in a right standing. He is faultless, he is guiltless, he is blameless. We know God's righteousness is demonstrated us through all throughout Scripture. It's demonstrated through His law, and that God could not give us a law that He Himself did not embody. So we have all His law that points to His righteousness. We know that God's righteousness is demonstrated through His prophets. He sent His prophets to the nations to call them to repentance, to call them from their unrighteousness back to righteousness. And they they declare to the nations how holy, how righteous, and how perfect God is. But we also know God is righteous through how He saves us. Because God is a God of truth and justice and holiness. We often ask that question, could God have not just saved us by snapping His fingers? Why did, he, why did he have to send Jesus to die on the cross? Why did he have to do it that way? I just don't understand. And it was to demonstrate his righteous character. Because in his law, he had said, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. There is a punishment for even that one sin. And so in his righteousness, God sent Jesus to take on his wrath and to allow us to go free. Because that punishment had to be taken care of, had to be paid. Or else, God would have been made a liar. And we know there is no lies in God, that he is only truth. And so, like I said, we we go to that picture of the courtroom. And we talk about righteousness. And what I want you to do for a second is to put yourself on the stand. And as you're on the stand... To your side is the honorable, righteous God himself. Before you stand your accuser, Satan. And before you also stands your defense attorney, Jesus himself. And as you sit there on the stand, being tried, your accuser steps forward. He looks at you and the judge. He points at you and he says, Colton has sinned. And fallen short of your glory. He starts naming your sins before the judge. He says, Colton is a liar. He's committed anger, unfaithfulness, and lust, and hatred, and envy, and jealousy. And he goes on and on and on. He's naming your sins before the judge. And as you sit there listening to him name your sins before the righteous God himself... You drop your head in shame. Because you know it's true. You know you're guilty. You know you are found with fault. You know you are found with blame. You know you are not righteous before that court. You are found unrighteous. Because righteousness himself is sitting beside you. And you cannot measure up to his standard. 
you fall short. And when all hope seems lost, when you know that you are about to be condemned, unrighteous, that is when your defense attorney, Jesus himself, steps forward. And as he steps forward, he says, yes, you have sinned, you have fallen short. But he reminds the judge that he has not. He reminds the accuser that he resisted his temptations in the wilderness and that he did not fall. He tells of his perfect life that he lived on earth. He tells how he never fell short. And he says that he did not have a punishment to pay for his sins because he did not sin. But he says how even though he did not have a punishment to, say, to pay, he still suffered. He was still beaten. He was mocked. He talks of how they put the crown of thorns on his head. He talks of how heavy it was to carry his cross to Golgotha. And he tells you as, as he was put on the cross that all unrighteousness of the whole world was put onto him and righteousness himself had to look away. But he says, as he took on all of your unrighteousness, he put all of his righteousness onto you. And it is in that righteousness that we, are, that we get to stand before God confidently, boldly, because we are no longer standing before God on our own account, where we know we fall short, but we're standing before God on Jesus' account, on his perfect life, on his blood, on his sacrifice, on his righteousness. See, 1 John 2, 1 through 2, tells us that, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. We get to stand on that work that he has done for us. As he was on the cross, our sinfulness was put onto him and his righteousness was imputed, bestowed on us. And so then we see Paul ask this question in Romans. He says, since we have been declared righteous already, do we just get rid of the law, not worry about it anymore? And Paul says, by no means. By no means. Rather, we uphold that law and we not only uphold it, but we live in the law of faith now. And what that means, what that means to live in the law of faith is that I do not have to try to be perfect. I do not even have to even act like I can be perfect. Where I fail as a husband, where I fail as a minister, where I fail as a student, where I fail as a friend, Christ's righteousness sustains me and gives me the grace that I need. I only abide in him. I remain in him, and I walk as he walked. And this is not my own work. It's his righteousness that sustains me. For as Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us, for, it, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Not of yourselves. Not of your works. So that we cannot boast. 
It is only the gift of God. The Bible even tells us that our best works, apart from Christ, are as filthy rags. They are dead, and they deserve to be burned. And it's only in Christ that any good work comes through us. And so our question is, is Christ's righteousness producing fruit in your life, or are you disconnected from the vine, producing nothing? Abiding in Christ means walking as he walks, in truth, in obedience, in love and fellowship for the brothers and the sisters. Abiding in Christ means abiding in our anointing, abiding in truth, abiding in confidence, and abiding in righteousness. So our goal is to be a child of Christ, one who has given our life to him, put our faith, hope, and trust in him, to be a child who is abiding in Christ, never content with where we are, but always wanting and striving to abide deeper. We do that by coming to God's word, learning his truth, learning who he is, so that we can walk as he walked. For if we know nothing about him, we cannot walk as he walked. If we know nothing about him, we cannot discern lies from truths. So we get close to him. We abide in him. We remain in him to walk as he walked. But what if you're the child who is not abiding? As Brother Tim always says, be sure that a Christian can never sin successfully. Your sin will find you out. God will punish his children. He will bring them back to him. It is only by remaining and having fellowship with Christ that you can truly be sustained and bear fruit. So again, we, I say, go back to God's word. Go back to ab abiding and remaining and getting close to him. But then we ask the question, what, what if you're not a child? You've never given your life to Christ and you're not abiding in him. Because if you don't belong to him, you cannot abide to him. And that's easy. Christ has made it possible for you to enter the holy place confidently. His anointing and his righteousness are there. They're there waiting for the one who chooses to give their life to him. And the one who abides in Christ now will abide with him eternally in perfect fellowship forever when that day comes. So as the band comes and as we have a time of response, let us pray. Lord, we come to you in just all of your beauty and your grace and your mercy. We come in all for how holy and set apart you are. Because we know that your holiness shows us how much we fall short. And we just pray that we will not let this Drop our heads in shame, dear Lord. But we will learn the truth of your word and we will come to that knowledge of you and that we will abide in you, we will remain in you so that we can come before you confidently, resting on that righteousness that is not from us, 
but that righteousness that is from God. And that we will live a life that is set apart for you and for your work. And that we will bear fruit because we are abiding in you. A fruit that honors and glorifies you in all that we do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.